No reason not to begin. Uh, Tom Ricks is the military historian of the New York Times. He has written also for the New York Times Book Review, been a visiting fellow in the history at Bowdoin College, and before he became a full-time author, uh, he covered uh, military affairs for the uh, Washington Post and the Wall Street Journal for 25 years and received two Pulitzer Prize. I want to say just one book, one uh, word about uh, a most famous book, uh, this is Fiasco, uh, and once you begin reading it, uh, you will read every word on every page, and it will just keep, uh, keep turning. Uh, the book has much new to contribute to our understanding of the failures of both the civilian and military leadership to take even a minimally adequate long view. Uh, but the heart of the book, Fiasco, a story that's never been told before, is that of a military occupation whose leaders failed to see a blooming insurgency for what it was and as a result led their soldiers into such a way that the insurgency became inevitable. Uh, we also want to uh, recognize at some point Mary Kay Ricks, uh, and we want to have her speak on the, uh, her book on the uh, 1848 attempt by the uh, slaves to join the Underground Railway. This, too, is a superb book. Tom? Roger, what's Fiasco about? It's about the U.S. Uh, invasion of Iraq in 2003. It covers 2003 through 2005, really. Uh, John McCain once told me that he lost weight reading this book because uh, he said um, he'd read four pages and throw it down and say, son of a bitch! <laughs> and, and, to calm, and he had a temper. To calm down, he had to go out walk around the block. Uh, and he said he wound up walking around the block about 40 times in the course of reading the book. Uh, thank you for all coming out today on such a beautiful day. Can you all hear me in the cheap seats? Okay, good. <clears throat> um, I'm going to talk today about my current book project, which is rather removed from Fiasco in some ways, but is actually very similar in some ways because it's about American leadership, about American generalship, and about strategic thinking. Uh, the name of the book is First Principles, uh, how the founding fathers were influenced by ancient Greek and Rome, and how that shaped our nation. In particular, it's about the first four presidents, uh, what they learned, how they learned, who they learned it from, how they applied what they learned in designing, for bringing the country to independence and designing it. Of those four, George Washington is the anomaly. Uh, and I'll talk about why. Um, but what's striking about him is, in a nutshell, while he was the least educated of the first four presidents, he was the most Roman of the first four presidents. This book began for me, it's called First Principles, it'll be out in November. It began for me on Wednesday morning after the presidential election in November 2016. I woke up, looked at the headlines, 
thought, oh my God, I never <laughs> expected this. I mean, I really, you know, I never pretended to be a political reporter. And when I heard political reporters talk about military affairs, I wondered if I sounded as stupid when I talked about political affairs. So I avoided talking about political affairs. But I had assumed um, that Hillary Clinton, though she ran an atrociously bad campaign, um, an arrogant, hubristic campaign, I assumed she would win, as she did. So I went down to my library and I thought, okay, let's get back to fundamentals. And I took down off the shelf Aristotle's politics. And I began reading Aristotle and other Greeks. Uh, and I especially wanted to see, because I, I believe now that we live in an oligarchy in this country. It's an oligarchy with democratic dressing, which Aristotle discusses. Uh, sometimes um, the more stable sort of oligarchy has the trappings of democratic representation partly to draw off steam. And that intrigued me. That led me to months and months of reading Greeks and Romans and then I went, when read what these young early Americans read about the Greeks and Romans. I went through the syllabi of the colleges they went to and really steeped myself in what they read, how they thought about it. And what really made this an adventure for me is something you couldn't do 20 years ago. All the words of the founders, the, everybody involved in the founding, you know, from George Washington, to Abigail Adams, it's all online, it's all searchable. So you can, you know, you were, we were all taught in high school, oh, John Locke, whoever he was, he was a big influence. Uh, you can go through and actually say, well, actually, they refer in all their writing 6,000 times to John Locke, but 12,000 times to Hume and Montesquieu. Why is that? And so you can actually say, well, actually, Professor, reading Carl Becker's book, the one that really put Locke on a platform, that's not the case. That Montesquieu stands much more largely in the forefront than Locke does in the considerations, especially around the time of the Constitution. <clears throat> But I'm going to talk today about the anomaly, George Washington, the most noble Roman of them all. And as I speak here, keep in mind a saying among American historians. The more you know about Jefferson, the sketchier he begins to look. <laughs> the more you know about George Washington, the more you admire the man. And for me, this is still true. I actually came away, having finished writing this book, I actually sent in the edited version. I, where the editor's gone over the first draft. So I've done the edit now of his, working with his comments. I sent it in 10 days ago. Uh, I came away with a really elevated appreciation of George Washington, and I think you'll see um, that come out in, in this talk. George Washington was called at various times the American Fabius, and I'll discuss that reference to an early Roman general, the American Cato, the American Cincinnatus, and to his everlasting credit, the one Roman he was never compared to was Julius Caesar. Um, although Tom Paine came pretty close once. <laughs> George Washington was an unusual man in many ways, but among his peers, he was unusual in a way that deeply embarrassed him. Alone among the first four presidents, he was not a learned man. He knew it. He writes early in the revolution to an aide-de-camp, I am conscious of a defective education. So too were his peers. 
Um, he did not have a classical ed education. He did not have a good education of any kind. He did not speak any language besides English. He never in his life traveled to Europe and he was not well read even in his own language. One evening in Philadelphia in 1791 over several drinks, Vice President John Adams debated with a fellow Massachusetts and Timothy Pickering about Washington's education. Pickering, who would become Postmaster General that year, argued that Washington was fundamentally illiterate. Could hardly write, he said. Adams disagreed. He wrote some very good letters during the war, Adams said. No, Pickering said. Those were written by his aides, especially that guy named Alexander Hamilton. But, and this is important, Adams concluded in recalling this argument with Pickering that Washington, whether or not he was educated, was a very thoughtful man. Likewise, Jefferson concluded that Washington was not that bright, but he was slow and steady with sure judgment. Now remember here, neither Adams nor Washington knew a damn thing about military affairs. Adams thought he did. Jefferson knew he didn't. So they never really understood Washington. They never understood that as a young man, he had been fast to act. Perhaps slow to think, but fast to act. Learning to think slowly and act quickly is a military virtue, one that he learned with some pain and difficulty, watching people die and bleed around him. There's a problem here that historians, I think, have with George Washington. Historians, like other researchers and academics, are fond of words. And I say this as someone who has grown up all my life been intoxicated by words. I remember still when I was five years old, a colleague of my father's at Brandeis gave me a book on word origins, which I still have. He just somehow knew I was into words. Washington was not. Washington was a man of deeds, not words. This is sometimes hard for scholars to grasp. Um, alone among the first four presidents, he did not leave any uh, autobiographical material. Now, he made sure that a biography that was written of him was closely edited, but he would not stoop to write a memoir to explain himself. That was beneath him. So he was not a man of words, and he wanted his deeds to speak for themselves. So what did George Washington learn? What made him so smart? How was he able to defeat the British Empire? Remember, when he takes over the US Army, he's the first soldier in the Army. <coughs> it doesn't exist the day he is named to it. The George Washington that's about 200 yards over there portrayed when he was appointed general by Congress in 1775. He did not know strategy. But he had learned a lot about other things early in his life. What is key, I think, to understanding George Washington is he was born in defeat, the French and Indian War. He suffered a couple of defeats, personal and rather catastrophic for the British. Um, of, of whom he was a part. He learned a lot from defeat early in his life, and I think this was key to how he would approach the, leading the Revolutionary Army 20 years later. 
During the French and Indian War, which he helped start, Washington was part of the British force. First at Fort Necessity, Pennsylvania, uh, just southeast of Pittsburgh, about 50 miles. He um, surrendered a small party in 1754. The following year, he was part of the largest European military operation ever seen in North America, General Braddock's expedition from what is now Washington, D.C., up towards what is now Pittsburgh. The British force was about 1,200 soldiers. A few miles southeast of Pittsburgh, what is now Pittsburgh, the British force was ambushed by 700 Native Americans, First Peoples is the term I would prefer, and 300 Frenchmen. Washington believed the French were poor fighters. He learned that day he was wrong. On that day, of the British force, 1,200, two-thirds were killed or wounded. This is far beyond decimation. This is devastation. It was an astonishing defeat. Washington had 20 years to think about that battle before he became a general in America's first soldier. Looking over his experience in the French and Indian War, I think he probably distilled them into some general lessons along these lines. I see five lessons. Know who you are fighting. Study the terrain and make it your friend. Be ready to change your views as circumstances change. Be ready to abandon assumptions. Listen to dissent and know how to weigh alternatives. Think slowly, act quickly. That is, be prudent in your consideration. Don't exhaust yourself and your force by constant movement. But when you do decide, act with great vigor. Most importantly, George Washington saw that he himself could recover from stinging defeat. And perhaps that the key goal of a general might be not to win a battle, but to keep his force alive. This was a crucial lesson also for command of his own self. He had a volcanic temper, and he had to learn to control himself, and that would lead in turn to his ability to command others. Out of this, I would say Washington became what we today would call a critical thinker. And you see this in his letters, uh, his wartime letters especially. More than almost all his peers, he was able to study a situation, evaluate its facts, decide which of those facts were important, develop a course of action in response to them toward a desired outcome, and verbalize the orders that needed to be issued. On that last thing, he needed some help from Hamilton and others. Verbalization. But, but, but. I'm sorry if that's mean. No. My, the brakes on my Subaru are being fixed, and they promised to call me. <laughs> but these lessons were all tactical. He still had to learn strategy. Tactical is actual fighting, control of a force in the battlefield, in combat, movement of troops, and so on. Strategy is a whole other thing. Uh, I don't think strategy is taught well in this country. I would define strategy in a nutshell as asking questions. Who are we? What are we trying to do? And how are we going to do it? But it begins with understanding who you are. He did not know a lot about strategy going into his second war when he was appointed general as, we, as portrayed in that statue. In 1775, 
1776, he had a lot to learn. He had a disastrous 1776. And he was very lucky he didn't have a disastrous 1775. He got out of it, um, not through his own actions. He suffered a terrible series of setbacks in 76, in the summer and fall of 76. He basically got kicked off of Long Island, kicked across Manhattan, and then kicked across New Jersey, chased across New Jersey. Yet, if the best measure of a general is the ability to grasp the nature of a war that he or she faces, and then to make adjustments, I have to conclude that George Washington was among the greatest, perhaps the greatest, this country ever had. This is not perceived or taught today often because he scored few victories in the entire revolution. But that misses the point. This was not a war that would be won by battles. It was a different sort of conflict. It was not a set piece, great battle confrontation um, on the fields of Europe. It was a new kind of war. It was indeed a revolutionary war. It was a war for the people. So coming to understand this, he would see it was about keeping his army intact and winning the support of the American people. In this way, he slowly became a Fabian. That, of course, is a reference to Fabius, the Roman general who defeated Hannibal by refusing to fight him. In 218 BC, Hannibal led a force of Carthaginians and Spaniards across what is now France and into what is now Italy. He then chased the Roman army around for 15 years around the Italian peninsula, but he never achieved a decisive victory. Eventually, he got back in his sailboats and went home to Carthage. His most successful opponent in this was Fabius. Becoming a Fabian was hardly a natural step for Washington to take. He comes into the war a very conventional thinker, much like uh, his British opponents, officers he had studied and learned under during the French and Indian War. He was a naturally aggressive man. He was inclined to be impatient. Um, this is not the recipe for a Fabian type of general. When you're fighting a Fabian war, you avoid battle. You wear out your enemy. You deprive your enemy of supplies. You attack his forage parties. Um, you work for the support of civilians and hope civilians will deny support to your enemy. There were three stages in the evolution of George Washington. In 75 and 76, he was a conventional thinker. Like I said, resembling his British opponents. He was inclined to take the offensive even when he did not have the troops to do it. He was contemptuous of a lot of his own soldiers, the militiamen, the part-time soldiers, what we today call the National Guard and to a degree the Reserve. Taking the offensive, not understanding his troops or the nature of the war, he suffered the series of defeats around New York City. So he steps back and says, I know what I'll do. I'm going to move to a war of post. Now again, even some very famous historians have screwed this up, Joseph Ellis most notably. A war of post is not a Fabian strategy. A war of post is, I'm going to pull back into defensive positions, forts, and make the enemy come fight me. Aha, says Washington. Maybe my, the militiamen run away on the battlefield, but if they're sitting behind walls, maybe they won't. Uh-uh. Um, it was specifically not a Fabian strategy because it was focused on battles, but focused on fighting them defensively. 
it failed even more miserably than the offensive approach. Washington, to his credit, studied this and learned from it. He came to understand that winning battles is not the same thing as winning wars. He came to understand that battlefield victories are not necessarily a measure of military effectiveness. He also came to see that a tactical setback, a battlefield defeat, can bring about a strategic advantage if it distracts the enemy, if it weakens the enemy, if it buys you time to bring your forces together. All these things, you can lose the battle and be in an improved strategic position. Uh, the famous saying that illustrates this is the general who's congratulated on winning a victory and said, I don't know how many more victories like that we can do, we can take. Benedict Arnold, for example, on Lake Champlain in October 1776 was defeated by the British, yet bought time and space for the Americans. Very important because in the same area, a year later, the Americans win a battle that was very important, Saratoga. Saratoga is a battlefield victory, a tactical victory, that leads to a great strategic victory, which is it brings France openly into backing the Americans. And at that moment, as one good British historian, Piers uh, Maxey wrote, wrote, the strategic center of the war shifted from Philadelphia to Paris. Even though, as Benedict Arnold was in an innovative way holding off the British in upstate New York, Washington was being chased across New Jersey. He was failing miserably in the fall of 76, and he knew it. Some of his subordinate commanders knew it too, and they were telling Congress that. They were saying he was the wrong man for the job. Good guy, just not, doesn't have what it takes. Washington quietly began to agree. In December 76, he wrote in a private letter to a relative that he thought, and I'm quoting here, quote, the game is pretty near up. In this low point, he was facing the reality that he had tried to fight the British in two different ways, offensive and war of post, and both had failed. His army was melting away. His senior subordinates doubted him. The people were losing heart. This is where I think George Washington really showed himself to be a genius, if admittedly not the sort of person we usually call a genius because he was a nonverbal genius. Now, it's a cliche and a bad one that generals fight the last war. That doesn't give them enough credit. Generals rather tend to fight the war they would like to fight or the war they expected to fight. But almost always, neither of those responses is adequate. The foremost task of a general, again, is to understand the nature of the war he or she faces, which generally turns out to be a third thing, not the one wanted, not the one expected. And this is especially difficult in the foggy first opening year of a war, the opening phase of a conflict, when you're not really sure what's going on, when personalities and situations haven't really hardened. Washington, to his everlasting credit, tried, made mistakes, observed, reflected, and learned. learned. And that last word, learned, 
made all the difference. In early, in, in late 76, in early 1777, George Washington learned strategy. He did not outfight the British, he outthought them. During this period, he learned how to use his soldiers. Yes, militiamen would scatter and run in set-piece battles, especially when they were hit in the open by volleys from well-drilled British troops, sometimes followed by a terrifying bayonet charge. Yet he saw the concluding that such troops could not fight big battles was like criticizing a saw for not being a hammer. Part of being a general is understanding the tools at hand and figuring out how to best use them. He learned that militiamen, while they looked raggedy, while they might run in a set-piece battle, were effective when used in a manner that played to their strengths. Let them fight near their own towns, and they were different soldiers. When they were amid familiar fields and hills, they were more resilient. They were extremely good, better than regulars, at gathering intelligence. When the situation is quiet, let them slip home, tend to their crops, play the political role of telling the people what's going on and policing the Tories in the town when you muster out the militia. All able-bodied men between 18 and 40 need to be on the town green. They would ask, you know, Brother Lewis, where were you yesterday? It's muster time. Brother Ricks, didn't see you. There's a political role here that is very important and that he came to understand. He saw that if you encourage militias to take on isolated British patrols on turf they knew, they could fight excellently. They could slip home, come back, well-fed, happier, and tell you what was going on. He, uh, Washington became a great consumer of intelligence. One thing that's especially striking uh, about him to me is you, you see in his battlefield orders to militia units, he's not only asking them for intelligence, he's telling them what to do in order to, to generate intelligence. Conduct this mission in such a way, let me know how the British react. He saw also a key fact of war that the uh, war movies are very misleading about. Battles only happen occasionally. Soldiers eat every day. Militiamen could be most effective when hacking away at British supply convoys and foraging parties that were out looking for cows and chickens. In fact, the New Jersey militia developed a wonderful tactic. They had their own herd of cows and they'd put them out there. And then they'd wait for the British to come and try to collect the herd, and then they ambushed the British. For much of the war, in most of the places, at any given time, that was the real war. Skirmishes with isolated British units. And these tactics were successful. So successful that ultimately, the British gave up on trying to forage in New Jersey and instead shipped their supplies in uh, from New York City, mainly stuff that had been growing on Long Island and then brought in, as you see in that terrific uh, TV series, Turn, a lot of food was brought in um, from Long Island and then sold and brought over to the so, uh, British forces in New Jersey. The numbers show this. The British had 31,000 effective soldiers in New York City in September 76. By February of 77, six months later, 
they had 14,000. The rest were gone. No big battle that, where they lost all those. They were killed, badly wounded, captured, seriously ill, or deserted. But in six months, they'd lost half their force in the, in the mid-colonies. And Washington and his staff understood what they were doing. In March of 77, a brash young West Indian, maybe 20, 22, depending on who, whose numbers, birth dates you believe, joined Washington's staff. This is, of course, Alexander Hamilton. Part of Hamilton's job was to get from Washington what Washington was thinking and then go out to subordinate commanders, generals, regimental commanders, and explain to them, this is what we're doing, this is how we're doing it. Part of it's also, and he doesn't say it, I think was also probably to assess, assess does this subordinate commander get it? And he'd come back and say, the guy doesn't get it, you need to move him or, or not use his force in that way. Hamilton wrote a beautiful letter that summarizes American strategy, and I want to read it. This is a, a quote from one of his letters at the time. Alexander Hamilton writes, the liberties of America are an infinite stake. We should not play a desperate game for it or put it upon the issue of a single cast of the die. The loss of one general engagement may effectively ruin us, and it would certainly be folly to hazard it. Our business then is to avoid a general engagement and waste the enemy away by constantly goading their sides in a desultory, teasing way. Uh, he could write. He, he may have been batshit crazy, but he could write. As that shows, Washington was both, at this point, when Hamilton is writing that, an adherent and an advocate of the modified Fabian approach. And in fact, when one general says, hey, let's get all our forces together and really go after the British, Washington shoes him out and says, this would be a most unfortunate plan to pursue, and I really think you need to drop it like right now. He did attack at times of opportunity or when he thought he had to. For example, you could not let the British take Philadelphia, the American capital, without a fight. You had to show at least you were willing to fight for it. And so he does, first at Brandywine and then at Germantown. But in his movements, he is a, a really impressive Fabian. He would not try to decide the war through big battles. He would keep his army intact. He would move away from the coast as necessary. Remember, the British dominated the seas until the French come in. But if you moved in 50 or 100 miles inland, the British were lost. They would have these long supply lines. So you constantly see him pull back up into a rural retreat when he has to. Rally the people, intimidate those who stayed loyal to the British, and time will be on your side. And it was. That's the key. George Washington adjusted. The British did not. And that's why the Americans won the war. So to conclude, in retrospect, I think it looks like, why not be a Fabian? It, just, it sort of seems like the obvious thing. There's such a parallel here. Hannibal is an invader from overseas who comes into Italy. He has very long lines of communication, and he has supply problems. He's never really sure if he's going to have the people he needs. 
um, a lot of the mercenary forces under Hannibal start melting away when they start getting worried about being paid. Likewise, the British were in a similar position. They were a force from overseas. They had very long lines of communication. They uh, did not have many additional troops available, and it took a long time to get them there when they were needed. And in fact, this came up after the war, the British Parliament held hearings on how did we lose this thing. They called General Howe to testify. Howe told them, and this is quoting from his testimony, quote, the most essential duty I had was not to wantonly commit His Majesty's troops, where the object was inadequate. I knew well that any considerable loss sustained by the army could not be easily repaired. That was his point of vulnerability. Even now, though, I think historians don't appreciate how much Washington changed during the war. I think part of this is his relative youth. When he takes command of the non-existent US Army in, the, in mid-1775, uh, he's 44 years old, relatively young for a senior commander. But what you see is he's much more able to change than older commanders are. Uh, there's a famous study of, of generalship in World War I that finds the same thing. There's almost a direct relationship. The younger the general, the more the general is able to adapt and change. You can see this especially in the treatment of histor by historians of the Battle of Monmouth in September 1778. They write about it a lot. It was Washington's last battle in the North. Uh, but they don't write much about an event just before then, which I think is much more significant, which is just before that battle, the British gave up the occupation of Philadelphia. They marched out. They abandoned it and they were Jude in New York. Think of the message that sent. They had come into the American capital, taken it over. They'd actually done a political census, listing everybody's political affiliations and loyalties, who was suspect, who was a good Tory. And then they left. The message that sent, that they would abandon the capital, abandon the loyalists in the capital, told everyone else across the colonies, don't count on the British to help you out when the chips are down a crucial mistake in a war for the people. In sum, Washington understood his war, the British didn't, and that made all the difference. Thank you.